Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Hello, so good to uh, be with you again. Uh, we are continuing on in our reboot series as we journey uh, through Genesis. And today we are introduced for the first time uh, to a man called Abraham in one of the most important passages of the Bible. Now, now you can learn a lot about what a person values by the choices that they make in key moments of decision. Uh, so, for example, if you had to go and climb a mountain and you needed to choose someone to uh, go with you to, to help you along your way, chances are you choose the most capable person. If, if you had to employ someone in, uh, at work, a key role, let's say, chances are you choose the person that's best qualified. If you had to promote a young person from a club's youth team into the first team, chances are you choose the young person with the most uh, potential. But if you had to choose someone to be uh, the father of a, a new kind of people on the earth in the midst of a global conflict, who would you choose? What, what qualities would you like to see in that person? Because really, this is kind of uh, what we have in our story here today. With, with human history spiralling out of control, God makes a choice. And God doesn't choose the most capable, doesn't choose the most experienced, he doesn't choose the person with the most potential. It, with, with human history spiralling wildly out of control, God doesn't formulate a, a European Super League. No, God instead chooses the weakest man he can find, Abraham. And in this, we, we kind of see something of what God values. We see what God cherishes. We see what God is drawn to. But to help us, let, 
let's start and, and look at the book of Genesis as a whole and see where this story fits into that book. And the book of Genesis really can be split into uh, two parts, Genesis part one and, and part two. And, and part one uh, really is uh, from chapters one to 11. And that, we guess, I guess we could say, is the origin story. Uh, we see that the creation of the world and then fairly early on in Genesis chapter three, we see this kind of foreign force uh, called, that the Bible calls sin, enter the world. And the logic of the book and the wisdom of it is after in this part of the Bible, Genesis 3, uh, the following chapters kind of detail this dramatic tailspin of humanity away from God as it descends into deeper darkness. And it catalogues stories of how sin, this virus, has, has gone wild. But this is Genesis part 1. And then we have something of an interlude in, in Genesis chapter 11, which Joel helped us with last week. It's a genealogy. And that's just a fancy word for family tree. And, and in this genealogy, we see a number of names and it ends pointedly and, and, and I suppose kind of expectantly on this man, Abram, who later is renamed Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Uh, this is where part two of Genesis begins in the very verses that we had read for us. And part two runs from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the book in Genesis chapter 50. And what we really have here is the writer focuses in, hones in, zooms in on the affairs of this uh, one family as God begins his big work of kind of rebooting humanity from what went on in part one of the book. And the people that God is a kind of rebooting, they would be different from those that went before. Not that they would be perfect by no means. In fact, this is kind of the most dysfunctional family in history. But nevertheless, they would be a new people, a people that would be characterized by faith. And God here in this very verse starts with Abraham to do this. But while God starts with Abraham, he would chiefly work through the offspring of Abraham. Jesus, with Jesus being the son of Abraham, by which I mean his great, 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 many times great grandson. And it would be in Jesus that God fulfills the promise made to Abraham in this verse. So it's a fairly well-known promise if you know your Bibles, but let me read it again. It says this, God speaks to Abraham and says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what God is really saying is kind of, I could put it like this, in Jesus in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because Jesus was in Abraham in as much as Jesus would come from Abraham in that he'd be a descendant of Abraham. He'd be part of his family tree. And it is in Jesus that there is true blessing. In Jesus that you will be forever blessed through faith. And what about this business about all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Perhaps you would say, well, I don't really recall how Abraham has blessed me in my life or even how Jesus has blessed me. That's an important question. And Paul in the New Testament in another book called Galatians and in chapter three, which is kind of a, uh, a commentary of these verses, explains that what God is referring to here is that this blessing that God is so keen to do isn't going to, be an ethnic blessing. It's not going to be just blessing one nation, but all families on the earth that put their faith in the offspring of Abraham will know this wonderful, wonderful blessing. 
And, and really, as we look through Abraham's calling, we see kind of this recurring theme. Because in God's calling of Abraham in these verses, he's, he's really setting a blueprint uh, for the Christian life. This new rebooted people that God is raising up in the midst of the earth, uh, they would kind of live a life patterned after these verses. And, and as we journey through, we'll kind of see what that means. But let's walk through the verses together. And one of the first things I guess we see in Abraham, again, is he is an unlikely candidate to be the father of a new people. Uh, the reasons are kind of threefold. Firstly, Abraham's father doesn't know the God of the Bible. Uh, secondly, Abraham's not wearing black skinny jeans because uh, he's 75 years old. Uh, he's not a young man. And thirdly, and perhaps most significantly, Abraham's wife, Sarah, and Abraham, they, they're unable to have kids. And in a world of genealogies, the ability to have kids was everything. So in the verses prior, I mentioned there was that list of names, a genealogy, and it kind of goes something like this. It says, so-and-so fathered so-and-so and had sons and daughters. 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 Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. This, this is meant to stick out like a sore thumb to us in its context. It would do the ancient readers of this. And the, the, the reality is that to struggle with having kids in any era is deeply, deeply traumatic. How much more in Abraham's time where, where kids, they weren't just seen as your children. They were symbolic of your security, your, your protection, your legacy. And therefore, childlessness in Abraham's time was shame. And as you read the story, you're kind of thinking, God, why, why are you choosing this guy? I mean, I mean God, if, you, if it were up to me, why, why don't you choose Dwayne Johnson? He's the rock, like you. Six foot four, charisma for days, 231 million Instagram followers. So only nine fewer than Matt Carvel. And, and of course, the guy never skips leg day. Look, this, this is the guy. Choose him, Lord. God says, no, no, no. I'm going with Abraham. And with God's choice of this weak, frail, unimpressive man, he rejects those that say, let us make a name for ourselves and selects the man who is unable to have children to carry on his name and says, I will make your name great. God is drawn to the one living in shame and God is drawn to those who are struggling to have children. That's what this story teaches us. Maybe in the last 12 months, you've kind of had a bad lockdown, as it were. Maybe you've wandered into things that you know are not good for you, things that you know are wrong, things that have left you feeling this sense of shame. 
And maybe even now, as I'm speaking about it, you know, you know that the very thing, the, the, the thing, maybe God is kind of nailing it for you now. Maybe your heart's skipping, uh, beating a bit faster. Well, what we see in the story of Abraham is God is drawn to a weak and shame-covered man. And you need to know that God is drawn to a weak and shame-covered you. If you believe in Jesus, your sin does not repel God, it compels him. His default instinct, if you believe, is to cover your shame, to cover your sin, to cover you. And what does God say in the midst of shame, in the midst of sin, in the midst of childlessness? Well, God speaks to Abraham and says, I will bless you. And I will make you a blessing. And this is something of the grace of God. This is what he's like. But we don't just see God cover Abraham's shame. God, God then commands Abraham. Uh, this is what it says next. This is what happens next. God says to Abraham, Abraham, go, go, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And it says, so Abram went. And this, this calling or this God calling Abraham to go, which really is the point here, it's not a one-off thing. If you look at the life of Abraham, as we, God willing, will be doing in the coming weeks, you will see that he's a man that is constantly on the go. And in that respect, he reminds me of his greater grandson, Jesus, who, who was always going Jesus would travel from region to region, city to city, place to place. Jesus would go to wedding, weddings. He'd go to funerals. He'd travel on boats. He'd travel on dry land. He'd go from wilderness to wells, from mountains to markets, from synagogues to seas. This man, Jesus, was constantly on the go. Some of us try and do 10,000 steps in a day, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, to be honest, uh, the majority of my steps uh, seem to be in the bakery aisle of the Aldi on London Road. Uh, but nevertheless, the reality is this, that Jesus was the kind of person that would do 10,000 steps before breakfast. And that's not an exaggeration. We read about his life. He would often wake up early in the morning and go up a mountain to pray. There's a few steps in that. No, Jesus was constantly on the go. And because Abraham was called to go and Jesus is on the go, Jesus has called us as a church to be going. He spoke to us a number of years ago through this, these verses in Isaiah chapter 54. God said to us as a church, Emmanuel, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad, abroad to the right and to the left. And by the grace of God, that's really what we've been doing for the last number of years, even as that video shows. We, we've started sites and services in and around Brighton. We even have the privilege of serving various contexts, predominantly European contexts, being in 
being in um, uh, Amsterdam, in Berlin, in Krakow, in Poland, in, in Belfast, being in London, going again even to um, uh, Bath. God has, God has called us to go. And that's again why we are uh, launching this giving campaign. Uh, we we want to raise funds for those who at one time were amongst us, but heard the call of God to go. And just like Abraham, many of them leaving their kindred, their country and their father's house, going to a land that God has shown them. Heroes, heroes. And the reality is this, that it's not just church planters that are called to this Abrahamic adventure because all of us, if you're a believer in Jesus, are called to this corporate go of the church. And one way we can do that is by our giving. Because to give really facilitates the go. And even as this verse tells us, God blesses us so that we might be a blessing. Jesus is called to go. Abraham is called to go. We, as a church, we are called to go. But that's not the only thing that happens in Abraham's life. It, it gets a bit weird, if I'm honest with you. Okay, this is what happens next. It says, from there, he moved from the hill country, excuse me, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. Uh, the Bible is a weird book sometimes. <laughs> this guy just starts building an altar. Is this kind of some sort of ancient version of Pilates or something? I, I don't you know. What, why is, what is he just building altars for? Uh, the reality is there is rich symbolism here. Uh, Abraham's building an altar. It wouldn't be the first altar. It wouldn't be the only altar. Abraham actually builds two altars in the nine verses we had read for us. Abraham's son, he would bear a son eventually by the grace of God, and his grandson would build altars. And these altars were different altars from the altars built later on in the Old Testament before this kind of sacrificial system was in place. Those altars represented sacrifice, but Abraham's altars didn't. They, they represented something of the presence of God. It was kind of a memorial when God appeared to him and was with him, Abraham would kind of build an altar. And, and this is what it says. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Who had appeared to him. What does this mean? Well, this means if, if you're a believer in Jesus, you can on the go know the presence, the love, the forgiveness, the peace and the grace of God. Anywhere. Anywhere. This means... If you're at home, if you're at home, if you're doing the dishes, if you're changing nappies, if you're at the supermarket, if you're in the changing room, if you're on the pitch, if you're in the house share, you can build an altar to the Lord and you can enjoy his presence. You could be in the valley of the shadow of death and you'd be able to say these words as you build an altar. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and you answered me from your holy hill. You can even be in a fiery furnace and build an altar to the Lord. And I tell you, Jesus will come and stand right next to you like a son of man. The reality is if you are a believer in Jesus, you're not about a place, you're about a person. 
Surely, surely God has been teaching us this in this last year more than ever. And how, how do we build an altar to the Lord? I mean, it's all well and good saying that we, we can, but how do we practically do that? And the answer really is, again, in the verses that we have. Uh, this is what it says. It says, and there Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. We are this side of history in the privileged position to know the name of the Lord and as much as the God that has revealed himself to us in the New Testament is Jesus Christ. And if you want to enjoy the fellowship and the presence and the friendship, fellowship is just a fancy word for friendship, of Jesus, just speak to him. Cry out to him like it says. Sing to him and there he shall be with you. And maybe you're not yet a Christian and you think, well, this is all well and good for Christians, but I've done some stuff. I, I've done some stuff or I'm doing some stuff I'm not particularly proud of. You know, he wouldn't want to be close to me, this God. Well, the reality is that's what the whole story of Abraham is about. It displays the fact that God draws near to the undeserved and the, and the unlikely. So let me encourage you. Even now, just ask Jesus. Say, Jesus, if you're real, come and show yourself to me. Ask him. Ask him day after day after day until he does. And I tell you, he will because he is good. He is good. Try him out. You've got nothing to lose. And then next in Abraham's life, we see some more unusual stuff. It says this. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and pitched his tent. This, this tent pitching actually becomes a, a consistent and regular feature of Abraham's life. And, and it's, not, it's not glamorous. Uh, this is a really kind of practical point, a really practical reality. Because tent pitching requires time, it requires energy, it requires patience. And Abraham wasn't just pitching a one-person tent. He was pitching a tent for him and his wife and his nephew, Lot, who travelled with him. So it would be tent goes up, tent goes down, because they're on the go. Tent goes up, tent goes down. Moving somewhere else, tent goes up, tent goes down. And if you've ever been part of one of the serving teams, the setup teams that... One of our sites, if you've been part of one at one of our sites in the East or in Hove or Oasis or here at the Clarendon Centre or Hove, chances are you get this. If you've ever been part of the set up or set down team of a church plant or just part of a church plant at all, you, you get this. Tent goes up, tent goes down, tent goes up, tent goes down. Chairs go up, chairs go down. PA goes up, PAs goes down. Instruments go up, instruments go down. Stage goes up, stage goes down. Getting to church, 7 a.m. in the morning, coming back, 2, 3 in the afternoon, on the day of rest, no less, then going to work the next day to a boss that probably doesn't like you. When it comes to tent pitching, there are no shortcuts. At least there were none for Abraham. And, and maybe you were part of a, a setup team. And, and maybe as things are gradually opening up 
And as a church, we increasingly open up along with the rest of the country. Perhaps you think that the prospect of going back and serving or being on a kind of a rota, it just is not setting your world on fire. Maybe you felt kind of in those days, you were part of a team, but it didn't really feel like a team because you were the only one doing it. Maybe you, maybe you just grew weary of it all. Well, let me say this to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you. Because in building tents, you have something of the faith of Abraham. You do well to pray it through with, with God, but I want you to know this, that in the eyes of the God of heaven, tent pitching is just as important as an altar call. In the eyes of the God of heaven, tent pitching is just as, just as dramatic, just as wonderful as a healing. I tell you, tent pitching really is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God over and over and over again. And so we see in Abraham's life something of the blueprints of this new rebooted people of God, this new Christian humanity that God is raising up and would ultimately and definitively raise up through Jesus. We see that first Abraham has his, his call and has his shame covered. We see then Abraham is called to go. We see as Abraham is on the go, he starts to enjoy the, the friendship of God. And we see Abraham get involved in the very practical work of building tents building this new kingdom, building tents to house those that God carries with promise. But we don't just see, we don't just see the, the life of this new called out people. We don't just see the Christian kind of life in Abraham's call. We also see something of the mission of Christ's life. Because in the story, we see Abraham leaving his country, his kindred and his father's house. But in, in the gospel, we see Jesus leave his heavenly country, his heavenly kindred, his heavenly father's house. Why? To make us a country. To become our kindred. And to take us home one day, on the last day, to his father's house. We see that Abraham built tents and built altars when God appeared to him. But Jesus, Jesus is the altar of God. Jesus is the tented presence of God that came down to be with us for a season. Jesus is God appearing to us. Jesus is God that appeared to Abraham in verse seven of our passage. He was there, it was him all along. Which is why Jesus can declare before Abraham was I am. And this Jesus God has raised from the dead. And, and where Abraham was promised a, to be given a, a great name, this Jesus has been given far greater than a great name. Because the Bible says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, 
on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Jesus hasn't just been given a great name. Jesus has been given the name above all names and this Jesus knows your name. And if you have shame, he will cover you. If you feel cursed, he will bless you. If you feel good for nothing, he will make you a blessing. Why? Because he loves you. He, he loves you. So let's build an altar to this Jesus and worship the king.